Managing money and knowing what is good for your financial well-being at every stage of life is a skill. It's a skill that every person needs. Managing money well means having an adequate level of protection, more savings than debt, and knowing how the choices we make can either make us or break us. Of course, we're all human. So in Your Money Matters, a podcast brought to you by Discovery, I unpack practical aspects on banking, life insurance, investments, and more in discussions with experts. Join me for these interesting conversations and hear how small things we do can take us to greater levels of financial security and more of life's rewards. Today, it's the turn of Stealthy Wealth. Yes, that is a person's name. Going by the nom de plume of Stealthy Wealth, a personal finance blogger who prefers to remain anonymous. Why does Stealthy Wealth want to be, remain anonymous? I suppose it's because you're filthy rich, Stealthy. Well, that would be my, my preferred reason. <laughs> but uh, the real reason is that uh, I disclose pretty much all of my dirty laundry as well as uh, my financial numbers on my blog. So for that reason, just to protect uh, myself and my family's identity, I prefer to remain anonymous. You should get one of those born identity voice synthesizer things as well, just to make sure that nobody recognizes you. Just a tip. Do tell me your big goal. And I mean, I think everybody's big goal would be to retire by the time they're 45. For the vast majority of people, they can't even conceive of retiring at 60 or 65, never mind 45. What precipitated the big goal? Back in 2015, a few things sort of happened at the same time. The first was uh, my wife and I found out we were expecting our first child. And there's nothing that sort of makes you sit down and reevaluate your life and your goals, quite like the imminent arrival of a child. The second thing was that we were just about to make our last payment on my wife's car. So that would have meant uh, we would have no more um, short-term debt. So suddenly we had a little bit of uh, money that was going to become available every month. And I started thinking about how best to use this money to get us ahead in life. And then the third thing is I discovered the FIRE movement in America, which was a community of people that sort of re-looked at this whole retirement thing and, and said, you know, do we really need to work for 40 years and then hope we have enough? Or can we be a bit more proactive about it and possibly even retire earlier than what people consider the normal retirement age? So all of these sort of pieces came together and I decided, you know what, life's short. I want to make the most of it. I don't want to be stuck in a nine to five until I'm 65. And I want to make sure that I have enough in retirement to enjoy those years. So that's sort of how the whole goal got put together. At that time, you are, if my maths is right, about age 30 or thereabouts, right? Around that time, yes. And what sort of job are you doing at that time? I'm not trying to expose your identity. I'm just trying to get a sense of how financially sorted you were at the time. I was in software engineering and I still am. So yes, I, I am fortunate in the sense that I was fortunate to have a decently paying job, which does help facilitate this goal. All right. So how financially sorted were you at the age of 30? Your wife has uh, just paid off her last car installment. It's 2015. It's five years later. Take me on the path from where you were then to where you are now. Okay. So back then I was sort of plodding along with the mandatory company pension fund I had started a little bit of investing on the side, but I didn't have like a, a goal better down. So I was just sort of plodding along. I was doing the basics right. You know, I wasn't up to my eyeballs in debt. I was contributing to a pension fund through the company. You know, I maintained sort of a rough budget to sort of stay on top of our monthly expenses. So those are the, some of the things I was doing right. 
But after I put my plan together and had this goal to retire at 45, I started being a lot more proactive. So I opened a TFSA since then for both myself and my wife, which is a, a great product, especially because you can access the money sooner than age 55, which a lot of the other retirement products you can't do. And yeah, I just started being more intentional about where we were spending our money and making sure it aligned with our priorities and goals. Did you continue putting money into a retirement annuity? Because a lot of people like this idea of a retirement annuity because you get an immediate tax benefit on the funds that you contribute to a retirement annuity. A tax-free savings account is great, but you're putting after-tax money into that and the returns over time are tax-free. So do you still do the RA plus the tax-free savings account? What do you do? So I never actually had an RA, but I always had the company pension fund, which the tax is sort of, it's the same idea. You contribute money and you get taxed afterwards. So there's a tax benefit to doing it that way. So I've continued with the, the company pension fund, but I haven't put any additional money over and above that into what they call the regulation 28 funds, which is RAs, pension funds and all of that. And the reason for that is because those type of products are not really conducive to retiring before age 55 because with an RA you, you can't access that money before age 55. RAs are useful because of the tax benefit but um, you need to have a sort of a stop gap that will get you to age 55 when you can access your RA and I think for that purpose the TFSA is fantastic. Yes it is after tax money but the money that goes in there remains tax free for the rest of your life whereas with an RA there is a bit of a tax drag once you start accessing the money. It's probably best to have both because you sort of balance your tax treatments. You know, you always hear that you should diversify your investments across geographies and asset classes. I also believe you should diversify across tax treatments as well. And one of the ways to do that is to have a Regulation 28 product as well as a TFSA and probably some normal investments as well. You couldn't have chosen a worse time to invest from a South Africa market perspective. Since 2015, returns have been below inflation. It's been a dastardly time to invest. And as I understand tax-free savings accounts, they're domestic investments. How have you done? Yeah, so you're quite right. The South African markets have been very, very poor and far below what people have been hoping for. And you'll see that in the returns of your pension funds, which are largely uh, invested in South Africa. But that's actually another nice thing about a TFSA is that the accounts are local, but you can invest in offshore unit trusts as well as offshore ETFs in there. The domestic performance has sort of been um, lifted by the offshore performance because the markets overseas have actually done really well over the last five years. And when you combine that with the RAND that's uh, been weakening as well, the returns that you've been getting in the US and Europe and that have actually been pretty decent. Yeah, I'm still behind where, where I'd hope to be at this point, and that's uh, largely due to the local performance uh, of our markets. But I'm hopeful that, you know, we've had a sort of a bad decade even. I'm hopeful that going forward, things will start picking up and, and looking better. Does your goal remain retirement at 45? Because, again, rough calculations, you've got uh, 10 years to go. That's the year 2030. My, my target is still age 45. Since then, we have also had a second kid and those little guys are quite expensive. <laughs> um, and combined with the local market performance, we are a little bit behind where I hoped we'd be. But the way I see it is even if we don't make 45, we'll still be in a far better position than where we would have been if I wasn't, you know, at least trying to aim for what probably is a quite a lofty goal. But if we don't make 45 and we make 48 or even 50, um, I'll be all right with that. And the, the point is that you've taken control 
And I think that is the thing that a lot of people don't do until they're considerably older than the age of 30. They haven't thought about it. They haven't engaged in the process. They haven't actually seized control of their financial destiny. And that's precisely what you have done. I think that's an excellent point. If you just make the decision to be better with your money, that's already half the battle for one. Just that act of being intentional now about what you do with your money instead of just, as I was doing, head in the sand and then just kind of hoping you're going to have enough in retirement. If you can just be a bit more intentional and even just aware of where your money is being invested and if you're tracking okay to make it in time, just doing that is already a, a huge step in the right direction. So you're not going to be soul destroyed and have broken if you can't retire at 45, if you don't reach this magical goal. Have you got a number in mind? How do you know what it's going to be like when you're 45 in order to know that you can make a decision to cut off your income and actually begin this process of whatever retirement means to you? And we'll get to that in a second. Back in 2015, when I put this goal together, one of the big things that happened was I came across something known as the, the 4% rule. Um, and it's based on a whole lot of research and I won't bore everyone with the details, but what it came down to is in order to, to have enough money, you know, to see you through your retirement so that you'll never run out of money because that, that's uh, ultimately what you're trying to avoid in retirement is running out of money. As a rule of thumb, they say you should have 300 times your monthly expenses. So having that number is a, was, was huge for me because now I finally had a target to aim for because a lot of the, you know, the calculations that, that you see, they're all around, oh, you need 75% of your final salary to be able to live off. And I mean, that's very airy-fairy for me. I mean, what will your final salary be? Why 75%? You know, will it actually be enough? So this 4% rule and knowing that you need about 300 times your monthly expenses was pretty concrete for me to aim for. So that was a huge eye-opening moment for me. So once you know your monthly expenses, multiply that by 300 and you'll get a very scary number, but at least it's a number that you can aim for. So what I did is I estimated our expenses, multiplied it by 300, and then I just adjust that amount for what I think inflation will be going forward, um, which is not an exact science, but you can get an idea by looking at your current inflation rate, factoring in medical, schooling, all of that, and you can kind of get a rough idea of what, how much you would need to retire. And that's the value that I used to put together my plan. Do you plan to send your kids to private schools? No. <laughs> um, because that, me, that's a critical, it's a critical financial decision. It's a really important financial Absolutely. decision, and you've taken that Absolutely. decision. Take me through the thinking. I've taken that decision. For me, the cost benefits not worth it. I also believe that a lot of the good attributes that make a good employee or a good business owner is actually learned at home and not necessarily through a private education. And a private education might get you the network, but in terms of, uh, you know, once you get into varsity, I think your university qualification is probably more important than which school you went to. And I've, something I've noticed in my career as well is as you move further and further along, your schooling actually becomes less and less important and your work experience starts counting more and more. You know, that's a very personal decision to everyone. I'm not going to discourage anyone from sending their kids to private schools, but it is hellishly expensive and you need to decide if it's worth the money or not. And it's a, it's a critical decision because private school fees absorb a huge amount of families' disposable income. Um, and it is about maximizing that disposable income so that you have money that you can invest. What has been the best investment decision that you've taken over the last couple of years? So for me personally, it was, it was actually moving closer to where I work. That sounds strange, but... There's so many benefits, both monetary and non-monetary, that I've experienced since, since doing that. I mean, I slashed my commute bill and uh, we, we went down to a one-car household because, you know, I didn't need a car to get to work anymore. And just the time benefits, I used to have a 
probably close to a two-hour commute, and now it's sort of like a 10-minute round trip. And, I mean, the time benefit means I have more time at home. It means there's more time to cook food at home. We don't eat so many takeaways anymore. There's more time to fix things around the house. I don't have to get handymen in and, and things like that. There's more time to do the things I enjoy instead of being stuck behind a car for, for two hours, getting stressed out by people cutting you off and all of that sort of thing. So for me, honestly, one of the best decisions I've ever made was to move closer to, to where I work. Uh, the benefits are just humongous. Now, Selfie, a lot of people try and save money by cutting back on big expenses. And those big expenses can be insurances. They can be short-term insurance needs for the one car that you have or property. Uh, that, and then there's the, the long-term stuff. Do you insure your life? Do you insure your wife? Do you insure your, your limbs, for example? Um, how do you, what, what's your approach to insurance? Yeah, so insurance is a very uh, useful product in terms of protecting your goals and your investments because what you don't want happening is, um, you know, writing off your car and now suddenly you have to fork out 100,000 rand to, to get a new one. Now you need to dip into your investments. And as Murphy would have it, that would be exactly as the markets are down. It's, uh, like COVID just hits and now you write off your car. So then you have to take money out of the, the markets at the worst possible time. So insurance is there to protect those goals. Um, so I do have insurance. And my view on insurance is that it's there to uh, protect you financially whenever you will not be able to recover on your own. So my approach to insurance is my cell phone, for example. I don't insure that because if my cell phone falls in the toilet, I'm not, that may or may not have happened. Um, <laughs> I have a, a spare one and you know, I can get by using that spare one. So I don't insure something that I can recover from on my own. But you know, when, I, when it comes to our car, for example, I don't want to rear in the Ferrari and you know, have a one million rand bill now to pay. Uh, I know I won't be able to recover from that on my own, so I ensure that. Same with my life insurance. Um, I know that my wife's a stay-at-home mom now. We rely on, on my income to, to keep the household going, so I'm not going to leave them high and dry if something happens to me. So I do insure my life. A tip for insurance that I will say is check what you already have through your company because a lot of company packages include uh, life and disability and rare disease insurance. Check if you have that and then check that it's enough. Um, so, yeah, insurance is important to protect your goals. but don't insure stuff that you would be able to recover from on your own. I can hear your biggest expense in the background, and it's nice and real. Um, your seven-month-old is sharing an opinion right now, which is, I think, a good and positive thing, and it shows that you are a real human being, even though you're very secretive about your identity. Talk to me about property. There are a lot of people who say, you know, over time, property is not an investment. It's it's an asset. That's fine, but it's massively expensive to buy. It's massively expensive to sell one day. Maintenance on a property um, drains your monthly budget. Budget, um, there are too many negative surprises that come with actually owning property. Are you a home owner? Yes, so we do own uh, the home that uh, we live in. Well, technically, the bank still owns it. But what a lot of people uh, do wrong, though, and, and I did it, you try to get into property as soon as possible. So we first bought a one-bedroom apartment. And then before long, you realize, oh, maybe there's children on the way. So then you go and buy uh, you know, something a little bit bigger. And then maybe there's another kid on the way, and then you have to buy something bigger. And I think where property, buying property really hurts you is if you buy and sell every couple of years because then you have this friction of estate agents commissions when you sell and when you buy there's the transfer duties and the bond initiation fees and that just puts you back to zero almost every time. So if you're comfortable with your career, you've finalized your family planning, you know how many kids you want to have, you're married, um, all of the, once you make sort of all of those big life decisions, you know, then you can maybe start looking at buying a property because you sort of settled in where you want to be and the size of the place and, and all of that. So if I had to give someone a rule of thumb, I would say don't buy until you're 30 years old. 
because by then hopefully you might have settled your career and your family and, and all of that. I mean, we bought when I was about 25 and you know, we had to move and moving is very, very expensive. And there's nothing wrong with renting. It gives you a lot of flexibility. It's usually a little bit cheaper than, than buying. So if you can invest that difference, save it for a decent deposit when you are ready to buy, that can go a long way to making uh, the property transaction a lot more bearable. Um, and then of course, once you own your property, your accommodation is sorted for life. They'll never be able to take that roof over your head away from you and you won't have to pay rent anymore. So I would say renting while you're still young and maybe haven't settled down yet, you know, not a bad idea. And if you want to buy, maybe just make sure you, you're not going to have to move, uh, pack up and move anytime soon. I think you're right on that. And I mean, a, a, an economist friend of mine once said to me, you know, it is, he agrees with you, by the way, that um, make the purchase decision once. Buy the worst property in the best possible area you can. Spend the next 20 years gradually improving it and do it on your own terms as and when you're ready. You'll pay transfer duties once. And uh, one day when your kids sell the house, when, you know, you get taken out feet first, then the estate agents can make some money out of you then. In the meantime... All of the money that you save on the transfer duties and all of those micro transactions that you go to building up your property assets over time are far better off being invested in markets. You'd never own, therefore, a, a holiday property, would you? Uh, no, no, I don't think so. Yeah, so what we ended up doing was we kept the first apartment we bought and rented it out, which if I could do it all over again, you know, I would never have bought that place. I would have waited a few more years, make sure what we want, where we want to be, and then buy. The thing is, a property is a huge, huge purchase. So you need to be absolutely sure you're doing the right thing. You know, you're going to be forking out probably in the millions, um, you know, when you're factoring interest and, and all the other expenses. So it's a huge decision. So don't, you know, don't just rush into it. Make sure you've done your research. Make sure you, you understand all the costs involved. And, um, you know, then, then you'll be fully prepared for what you're undertaking. Financial freedom is an amazing concept and it means a different thing to every single person who talks about it. Financial freedom to you may be stopping formal work at the age of 45. Financial freedom to others may be to eat a restaurant meal seven days a week. What's your idea of financial freedom? Financial freedom to me is just having enough. It's not about being super rich or super wealthy. I just want enough to cover my expenses. And as you mentioned the picture of financial freedom might look different for everyone, but the governing concept is still the same. You want enough assets to draw an income to cover your expenses. And it's actually interesting then because when you look at it that way, the only factor in determining your financial freedom is your expenses. So that's what you need to cover. So if financial freedom means traveling the world and, and, and living an extravagant life, then you can do it that way. But just understand that the number that you need to hit to achieve that is going to be a lot higher than you know, someone who maybe just wants, you know, one vacation a year and just being able to stop their day job, spend more time with their family. So again, it's personal how you define that and, and what your expenses are going to look like in retirement. And that's a decision you need to make. Um, are you going to work longer to have a more extravagant retirement? Or are you going to maybe try shave a few years off your nine to five, but then be able to retire early and have more years to do the things you truly enjoy and are passionate about? What's fun? in the stealthy house i mean is fun uh, arriving home at four o'clock in the afternoon and staring at each other over a single candle as you share a tin of beans um i mean just just how aggressive are you on the family expense line it's a good point because some people that is fun and for other people fun is going out you know it's all uh, 12 o'clock eating fine food traveling the world but for me fun is family time i love coming home playing with my kids eating a good meal with my wife but I also have hobbies on the side. Fun for me is also my blog. Believe it or not, it doesn't generate any money, but I, I love doing it. 
And then also I'm a, I'm a bit of a runaholic. I've done two comrades and I, a couple of ultra marathons and marathons. And uh, my wife always moans that we never go on holiday unless it's for running. <laughs> but running takes you takes you around uh, around the country and it can even take you around the world. So that is a, a hobby that I'll probably continue to pursue even uh, long after I'm finished working. What does your wife think about this? Because so often the idea, we can get wonderful ideas in our own little minds as we sit and contemplate the future, but no financial plan works in isolation. It's got to have the team buy-in. The family has to buy into it. And your kids are not yet at a stage where they're going to be expressing financial opinions dramatically, but your wife will. Is she on board? So I was fortunate that, uh, you know, I suggested this to my wife and, uh, you know, I got her buying almost straight away. Yeah, maybe there's couples out there that won't be so lucky. But, you know, there's a couple of ways to do it. I mean, if your partner, you know, doesn't want to, say, retire early and they want a more traditional uh, working career, that's fine. You can maybe work with that. Okay, you cover off the expenses um, and I'll cover off. And then once your half is covered, your own financial journey or your own investments and goals, then, you know, you can be retired early and your wife's more than welcome to continue working or whatever the case is. But I think the most important is to communicate because no one's going to smell what you what your plans are and what your goals are. So talking about it can go a, a long way. It's not always a comfortable discussion, um, but I think it's a very important discussion. Often what happens is uh, someone might have a strong opinion about one thing and the other partner might about another thing. And Somewhere in the middle is probably a solution that's workable for both of you and that you could both buy into and agree on. And as you go through this journey and you choose to share the journey publicly, why have you decided to do that? Because you want anonymity, but you're perfectly willing to share the the ups, downs, the turmoil, the happiness, the excitement, the hacks with absolutely anybody who's prepared to log on to stealthywealth.co.za. That's a good question, actually. Um, Part of the reason for the blog was, uh, you know, I was going to be doing a lot of research and, uh, you know, drawing up a lot of spreadsheets and facing a lot of decisions. And I just figured, you know, if I'm going to be doing all this research and putting together all this stuff, why not share it? And if even just one other person can benefit, at least that's, you know, that's great. So part of it was just to help and enable um, anyone else to make better decisions with their money. And the other thing is South Africans are generally very bad with personal finances. I mean, you see it in our, in our stats, the retirement stats are dismal, the, our debt stats are dismal. So I just wanted to maybe show people that, you know, there is another option. You don't have to go down the same path that everyone else is going down. There's a way to take control of your finances and just be better. And if that, you know, if you want to uh, go down the early retirement path, then I wanted to show people that it's very possible. We're not exceptionally rich or anything like that. But, you know, if you have an income or a dual income household, just by making better decisions, you'll be amazed at the options that can get opened up to you. Talk to me about some hacks, um, how to get a home loan hack and other hacks that you talk about. Is it finding loopholes in systems? Is it just working differently to the way in which a bank might want you to work when you go and ask them for a home loan or a vehicle loan? Tell me about the concept of hacking systems. Yeah, it's just about um, trying to get a better deal. And I'm not talking haggling and being a difficult customer. I'm talking about using the options that's out there that may not be advertised very widely because they're not always in the business's best interest. I mean, your bank's not going to email you every year and say, oh, by the way, you know, you might qualify for a better interest rate on your home loan. Um, would you like it? It's been saying, hmm, I wonder if the banks would consider giving me a better interest rate. I've been a customer of theirs for five years. I've been making all my home loan payments. I've been paying extra possibly send them a mail and ask. So that's exactly what I did. And it turns out that the bank was like, yeah, yeah, you have been a good customer. 
would you like you know 0.3 cents off your of your home loan which doesn't sound like a lot but if you you fax that in over the you know 15 year payoff period or whatever the case is and suddenly you're in the tens of thousands of rands better off just thinking about little things like that can actually you know have a huge impact on your finances what's been the most valuable thing you've learned through this process i mean you're five years into this epiphany you've got 10 years to go before you reach your goal what is the most valuable thing that you've learned the best advice I'll give anyone, and, and the thing that it keeps coming back to is, if you just manage to spend less than what you earn, that's 99% of the job done. That's an incredibly loaded statement, and, and I realize that, and it's, it's super, super simple in theory, but in practice, it can be tricky. It's similar to, to losing weight. Everyone knows exactly how to do it, but they want the quick cuts, and they want the hacks, and they want the magic diets and the magic pills. Where, you know, if you just exercise and eat right, you're going to lose weight. It's as simple as that. If you're going to spend less than what you earn, you're going to get wealthier. You can use that, they call it the wealth gap, the difference between what you spend and what you earn. And you use that wealth gap to pay off your debt. You use it to build an emergency fund. You can use it to invest. Any of those things is going to move you forward financially and leave you in a better position. So if you can just get that right, you know, 99% of the job is done. And then what I found was once you start spending less than what you earn, you start getting curious about what you can use this money for. And then you start reading and you start learning and you start, you know, trying to make the best uh, impacts that you can with that money. You know, you'll be amazed at what you can achieve just with freeing up a couple of hundred or a couple of thousand rand a month. Do you ever spoil yourself? Do you ever spoil your wife? Do you ever surprise her with something luxurious or expensive or delightful or wonderful? Yeah, <laughs> she might not call it those words, but... <laughs> I got you asparagus, dear. Uh, I mean, but yes. Yeah. <laughs> but yes, we go on holidays, we buy ourselves nice things. So we're not living in a cave and not doing anything. But I think what we may do differently is within reason and it's it's planned for. It's not to spur of the moment, oh, let's just go swipe a credit card, we're at the mall and go, you know, drop 5,000 rand at the shops that day. It's, um, I know her birthday's coming up. I know I'm going to spend X amount and then I'll go spend that money. It's just, again, it's about being intentional. I mean, I'm not saying don't spend your money. That's the whole point of earning money is that you, you're able to spend it and you're able to get the most out of your hands. But I think just being a little bit more intentional and just with a little bit more planning, it's a lot better. It's a much better way of going about it. A lot of people, when they talk about investing for the future, they talk about the sacrifice of doing so. They talk about sacrificing in the present for long-term reward. It doesn't strike me as that you have that mindset. Uh, you don't have the sacrificial mindset. You're determined to live comfortably, frugally, but comfortably. You will spend a little bit of money on treating yourself from time to time. You, you're not holding back and not living. Uh, you are determined, I think, to have a good and comfortable life, but you're equally determined to ensure that there are long-term savings and that they are put aside. And it's a fundamentally different mindset from this idea of investing and saving should be agony in the short term so that one day you don't have to live on cat food, which is one of the mantras you hear so often, which is actually very off-putting to anybody who does want to start the investing journey. It's a balance between spending money on things you enjoy and making sure there's enough for a rainy day and investing for your future. Yes, there is a little bit of sacrifice. There always is. I mean, you know, everything has pros and cons. So by doing one thing, you're giving up something else. And I mean, there's been times where, you know, I've really wanted to buy something and I haven't because something else is more important. But I think that's where a lot of people get stuck up. You must decide what's important to you. I mean, at the end of the day, you only have X rands landing in your bank account. If you're not spending that money according to your priorities and you're doing something wrong, you know, your budget should reflect what's important to you. 
if you're keen on losing weight and your budget's saying that you're spending 3,000 rand a month on takeaways, that's not in alignment anymore. So for me, my budget reflects that I want to retire early. So there's money that goes off every month for that goal. And I don't view it as a sacrifice. I view it as moving myself to where I want to be. I view it as a, as a privilege to be able to do that. And I enjoy seeing that money going into investments every month because I know what it's for. And I know uh, the goal that I'm going to hopefully achieve by doing that. How did you respond when markets collapsed around your ears in March and April? What was your, your, your visceral response to that? Did you get scared? Did you panic? Did you think you'd made terrible mistakes? I wanted to buy more. <laughs> I was wishing I had more money available to invest. But, you know, I think that comes from being familiar with the markets and how they work and knowing that they go through cycles and knowing that there will be crashes and dips and knowing that with a long-term view, none of this short-term nonsense actually matters. You know, I don't need the money this year, so why should I worry, you know, what's happening to, to those investments this year? And I actually wrote uh, two blog posts which came out within a few weeks of each other. The first one was like how I'd lost a couple of hundred K in paper money during the market crash. And then a few weeks later, I wrote how I'd gained a couple of hundred K in paper money with the, when the markets recovered. Because that's what markets do. They go up, they go down. But if you just zoom out and look over the very long term, I mean, they've survived Great Depressions. They've survived 9-11. They've survived global financial crises. They've survived tech bubble bursting. You know, they they go through ups and downs, but over the long term, they, they do what they do, um, which is reflect human innovation and progress. And I mean, if you're betting that the markets are not going to go up, you're betting that human beings are not going to get better over time and invent new things and become more efficient and create new products. So with a long-term uh, view, market crashes actually work in your favor because you just get to buy more of the same stuff for cheaper. That's my view. I know not everyone has the same long-term time frame and not everyone has the same risk appetite. But if you can just understand market cycles and not let them spook you and just stay invested, you, you'll be okay over the long term. Look, make no mistake, you know, it can be scary watching your investments um, take a nosedive. But that's why it's important to know your time frame and your goals. And if your time frame is long, you need to just sort of not open your account, don't look, close your eyes, just get through it and, and keep investing every month, knowing that that's your plan and that's your goals and short-term noise shouldn't affect it. I think that is uh, absolutely spot on. Um, what's your latest big idea? Do you follow trends? Do you follow ideas? Do you go to Briars and people say, hey, but you've got to do this. Um, do you ever fall for that nonsense or do you also tune that out? Yeah, I, I find the, the investing trends sort of interesting, but just purely from a, you know academic viewpoint, I don't, I don't act on them. I invest in ETFs, which just track markets. And my view is that if any of these trends truly take off, so indirectly, I will end up investing in whichever trends do take over the world. So it's the same with cryptocurrency. I don't invest directly in any Bitcoin or anything like that. But I do know that if there's any companies that start making good profits out of cryptocurrencies, then they'll automatically appear in the ETFs that I invest in and I'll get uh, exposure to them in that way. Have you made any horrible mistakes? Anything that you regret? Uh, absolutely. Uh, I call it the 60,000 rand date that I took my wife on. Um, I got involved in uh, some leverage uh, instruments, which is basically taking debt to buy shares. Um, I had no idea what I was doing, but it seemed like a good idea. And I put in about uh, 60,000 rand. I lost it all within a few months. <laughs> and then the company that I did it through, they had their one year anniversary. And I got an email to say they're doing a, like a thing with and there'll be some speakers. And I said to my wife, come, we're going. And we are going to make the most out of that 60,000 rand I lost and have a good evening out. And was it a good evening? 
<laughs> it wasn't too bad. One of the, the really good things that actually came out of that was uh, one of the speakers who spoke that evening, he had a, a website on investing and um, after that event, I went and checked out the, the website and uh, from that website, I actually learned a lot and it actually put me on the straight and narrow path. So uh, consider it school fees and it actually left me better off, I'd say, at the end of the whole experience. You see, there's an upside to most things. Stealthy Wealth is his name. He writes a blog. You can find his daily, weekly, intimate thoughts about money on stealthywealth.co.za. Thank you for sharing those thoughts with us on this Discovery Podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode of Your Money Matters brought to you by Discovery. Share the podcast and join the conversation on social media with the hashtag Your Money Matters and tag at discovery underscore sa you can subscribe to the discovery podcast channel discovery south africa on your favorite podcast app or visit discovery.co.za to listen to all of our shows